You're listening to ReachMD, and this is COVID-19 on the front lines. The following episode has been brought to you by the American College of Chest Physicians. Chest is an internationally trusted source for clinical updates and advancing patient care across the landscape of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. With clinician members at the center of this pandemic, we are closely monitoring COVID-19 and regularly making resources available to help you navigate the challenges of this public health crisis. Howdy, this is uh, Victor Test. I'm uh, the Director of Pulmonary and Critical Care and uh, at the Texas Tech Medical Center in Lubbock, Texas. I'm also uh, privileged to be on the Board of Regents at the American College of Chest Physicians, or CHEST. Today, uh, we're hosting a webinar uh, with uh, 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 Mr. Andrew Klein, who is a clinical nurse specialist uh, in respiratory therapy at uh, Chicago Rush Presbyterian Medical Center. Uh, we're pleased to have you, Andrew. Thank you for taking time to join us. I know you're busier than a one-armed paper hanger up there. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Kest. I appreciate you having me on. Andrew, why don't, why don't you just kind of tell us, uh, give us kind of a general overview of what's happening there in Chicago. Yeah, so um, as as we kind of talked about off camera, Doctor Tess, we we um, we typically uh, have you know four ICUs that we that we run that are that are fairly separate. Um, we have a neuro ICU, a surgical ICU, a cardiac ICU, and a medical ICU. And uh, you know we we pretty much run uh, the, the kind of patients you'd expect through those units. And so. Uh, it's it's uh it's busy and steady and we pretty much have a good system down for how we're going to deal with those patients and so when this uh coronavirus uh epidemic happened and turned into a pandemic and started sending patients our way we really had to had to take a step back and uh make a make a lot of changes around there sure yeah here in the South Plains, we're we're a little behind, lagging a little behind you in terms of case numbers and load. But of course, we anticipate uh, a surge probably a little bit later than you are anticipating uh, in cases and uh, burden on our ICU. Can you tell us a, a little bit, Andrew, about how your normal respiratory uh, uh, practice on mechanical ventilation and ICU care uh, goes uh, for our listeners? Sure. So. Uh... We enjoy a, a fair amount of our uh, of autonomy in terms of our ventilator management. We have uh, a ventilator protocol and we have a weaning protocol and uh, we also have a proning protocol. So we, we pretty much operate under those protocols with with uh, pretty minimal physician uh, direction. And I mean, they're around and we do speak to them and, you know, we keep each other in the loop on what the plan's going to be for a certain uh, patient or patients. But uh, the respiratory therapy uh, department uh we do a lot of that on our own so we're sort of used to uh seeing a patient optimizing them on the vent within our protocol and uh you know sending the necessary uh, uh labs to confirm that we're on the right on the right track and then we you know talk to the team and you know hey what's the plan you know what are we doing tonight we're just gonna you know kind of get them through the night and uh and and look at waking them up in the morning okay cool let's do that and uh you know that's that's typically how it goes really in all four of the units we just kind of get the plan together once we get them tucked in on the ventilator and 
And then we just sort of run that plan. And if we have any hiccups, we loop the physicians back in. But if everything goes according to plan, we, we pretty much take them through, uh, mostly start to finish on our own. Well, that's a, that's a nice approach. And I think, uh, illustrates a lot, uh, you know, of how we're going to have to deal with crisis circumstances like we're currently facing the team-based approach and interdisciplinary approach with respiratory therapy, nursing, physical therapy, uh, physicians, physician extenders, and, and, uh, uh, advanced practitioners in the ICU is crucial uh, as we deal with this challenge. That's a very uh, a very admirable uh, way to build your program. So that's uh, something that's almost aspirational for many of our programs. Can you tell us a little bit, Andrew, about uh, how the last two weeks have, have altered your practice or what, what kind of effect it's had on how you are doing things? Well, that's that's a great question, uh, Dr. Kess, and I can tell you as somebody who's who's been around a little while, and I've worked at a couple different institutions, and you know we've we've had things come up where we've had to, you know, uh, implement things with uh, with a short time frame or or change things around or move things around, but I don't know that I've ever seen anything quite like this. We started out we had a uh, we we had a wing of our medical ICU that we built a few years ago. Uh, for the uh, Ebola uh, scare that we had. I think it was around 2015, 2016, around there. Um, and it was all negative pressure. It was it was four rooms. We were just going to put the Ebola patients back there. We had a plan for how we we're going to deal with them. And, and so that was already there. So initially we said, hey, let's just put the, the coronavirus patients back there. Well, I think it was pretty... Uh, it was pretty conservative thinking to think that those four rooms were going to house everything we were going to get because that lasted about uh, a half of one shift. And then we realized that we were, we were going to have to figure something else out. So uh, initially they opened half of the medical ICU and, and put some doors in where they, they split it in half and half of it was going to be for the coronavirus patients. The other half would be for the typical MICU patients. And then, uh, they realized, okay, well, that's not going to be enough. So then they opened one of the general medical floors. Uh, turned out it was an ortho floor. So then it was staffed with ortho nurses where we were going to put the non-critical rule out patients. Uh, so then that happened. And then the command center decided, okay, well, none of this is going to be enough. So let's figure out where we're going to put all these people. So since then, and this has been, this all happened over the course of probably four or five days. And then they met and realized that wasn't going to be enough and said, okay, so we're going to open some of these floors that we have that are kind of equipped to put patients in that we don't really ever put patients in. And so they opened three of those floors and the medical ICU is now just coronavirus. There's no actual medical ICU patients that go there. So, and we've also taken to sending a few of the critical overflows to negative pressure rooms in other ICUs. So um, I would say over the last two weeks, all of those things have happened and we've had to sort of move our staffing around because our surgical ICU doesn't need quite the staffing that it used to need because we're not doing any elective procedures. So there have been fewer cases come out on ventilators. So obviously we don't need as much uh, staff support up there. So we flex them down to the medical ICU, the charge person. Uh, typically, uh, the last, you know, eight or 10 days has, has spent most of their shift down on the, on the medical ICU floor. So, um, those are some of the things that we've really had to, had to implement and had to just sort of change how we staff and how we, where we put patients. And, um, we've had to, 
um, rapidly implement uh, our proning protocol that uh, in, in order to include more of the nursing staff. Um, so these are just some of the changes that have just happened day by day. People are, are coming in on their off shifts to, to help with training and, and uh, picking up extra shifts to, to help with coverage. And we've upped our core staffing. We brought an agency um, and we've developed a, a plan moving forward that we're calling our um, that we're calling our surge plan um, that we sort of talked about last night. So so a lot of moving parts and a lot of things uh, pretty much changing day by day at our place. Yeah, that's uh, I mean, that's uh, both daunting and, and, and impressive. It's it's nice that uh, your hospital had the ability to expand into areas that were not already uh, taken by other patient care. Uh, a lot of places don't have that option, but I guess that also emphasizes the need uh, for planning and ahead for those of us who haven't uh, begun to feel the brunt of this particular uh, problem. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the the effect of the 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 the, the burden of patients has had on your on your protective measures for uh, your respiratory therapist and your and your and your healthcare team? Yeah, that's another good question. So, uh, like like I assume a lot of places have uh, have had to do, um, we've had to take a good hard look at what our availability of those uh, protective resources are and what we actually need as a minimum to protect our staff members that are that are taking care of these patients. And I think that. Um, our initial plan was a little bit too ambitious uh, in terms of what we would be able to do and sustain uh, as as more of these patients were coming in. So I think uh, our command center has had to create more of a conservative approach uh, based on that to how our staff members protect themselves and when you actually need to ramp up to a higher level of protection and when you can get away with, uh, with, with the basics and in terms of like doing a certain procedure, taking care of a certain uh, type of patient that, that might be a, a rule out versus somebody that you know is positive and, and, and different things like that that they've looked at um, in order, I think, to make sure that those resources continue to be available as we see more of these patients come in. Well, I think, you know, we're all, uh, everybody across the country is sort of running into that same dilemma. We have the ideal of what we would like everybody to be able to use in personal protective equipment, and then we have the reality of what we can do and sustain. And, uh, I, of course, that's very frightening to uh, everybody in the healthcare environment. Uh, we've had to make uh, uh, plans uh, based on limited supplies almost from the beginning, and, we, of course, we're not nearly as far into this as y'all are in Chicago. Um, do you, uh, can you give us a little advice on, uh, on uh, uh, how y'all, how ru uh, the Rush uh, uh, Medical Center uh, approaches proning in terms of uh, nursing and personnel and uh, how, is, do you have a team that does that or is it the, is it the ICU nursing uh, and respiratory therapy that make that happen? So uh, that, that's an interesting story uh, too, Dr. Test, how that, how that materialized. So uh, one of my partners, Tyler, who, uh, who also does some work uh, out at Chest in, in his spare time like I do. Um, so him and I, for basically about the last five years, have been working sort of behind the scenes to try to get a, uh, a proning protocol together where we could 
more easily utilized proning because prior to that, um, we utilized the rotaprone bed, which was a personal preference of the uh, leadership in our medical ICU where we did most of the proning. Um, and it was implemented before he and I ever went to work there. And that was just what they had always done. And um, they had a fondness for it. Uh, but it, it created a lot of barriers because it took a long time to get it ordered. It took a long time to get the patient tucked in it. And, you know, a procedure that that shouldn't take a long time was taking a long time. So, um, so we had always had the idea, and uh, we'd even written a loose policy, um, you know, trying to get that implemented. So, um, once this uh, coronavirus uh, started to become more real uh, here in the U.S., and we started to see the writing on the wall as to what we might have to deal with, um, one of our physician champions. Um, kind of kind of stepped up and said listen this is uh this is just gonna have to happen we're gonna have to fast track this and luckily we had some of the infrastructure in place and uh, uh tyler along with a couple of our um uh, along with a couple of our icu nurses uh stepped up and did some rapid fire training over the first couple days as these patients were coming in and it just happened to coincide with the first blast of patients that we got so we were able to get um, some hands-on training as we were doing the sort of the mock training. And, and so um, it, was, it was very uh, sort of a crash course. And over that first three or four days, uh, because the volume was so high, we had, I want to say we had that first three or four days once we started this, we had about 15 patients come in that needed to be intubated that were either high suspicion or confirmed uh, coronavirus patients, and we proned about half of those people within the first few hours that they were on the ventilator. And around that, getting them prone, getting them supinated uh, in in the next shift, uh, and and all the turning that took place, we were able to, able to get a high percentage of that uh, medical ICU staff as well as our respiratory staff pretty comfortable pretty quickly with doing it. And now we've moved on to doing some crash course training with the ICUs that are taking some of this overflow as we get more of these patients in. So um, I think that in some ways this uh, this disaster has been kind of good for moving that project forward. And now um, as we get through these coronavirus patients and 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 hopefully, uh, you know, uh, save a lot of them because we're able to do this so effectively now we'll have this in our in our tool belt to use on our normal ARDS patients. Uh, and, and so we can take a little bit uh, better care of them as these coronavirus patients start to start to not uh, need as this high level of care uh, a few months from now, hopefully. Well, thank you, Andrew. That's very impressive. Uh, can you, uh, just one last question, and I have to, I'll just say for the audience that I didn't, I, we didn't talk about this question before. So this is a surprise question. It, it's almost like an Easter egg. Um, so, Andrew, could you just briefly uh, tell us about uh, how you all are utilizing rescue therapies like nitric oxide and inhaled prostacyclin uh, in this subset of patients? Well, that's a good question, too. I think we are utilizing all of these therapies um, in, in accordance with the directives that the Society of Critical Care Medicine came out with um, uh, a couple weeks ago or a week ago. I, just, I can't remember when it was, but... Anyway, they, they had published uh, or made available to the to the healthcare uh, teams uh, this pretty concise, uh, well, 
part of it was concise and part of it was 104 pages of, uh, of recommendations that covered literally everything that you might run into with a, with a coronavirus patient. And so, and it was kind of an expert panel that, that dug through the research and sort of summarized it for all of us. And, uh, so we use that to sort of build our own, uh, kind of, uh, mini protocol for these patients that dealt with pretty much anything that they might need from, you know, fluid if they needed it to steroids, uh, you know, anything and everything vent management. So, uh, as far as the, uh, nitric oxide, uh, prostacyclins, they discourage the use of prostacyclins more for the aerosol generation than for anything. I will tell you there have been a couple patients we have used it on, but mostly in our patient population that we've had so far, we basically just use it till we can get them prone. So, and then we, and then we wean it off once we get them optimized in the prone position because a lot of them come in and I, and I, I don't know how uh, the people who will be listening to this, I don't know what their pa- patient populations have been, but ours have been in, intensely sick. And, uh, we've had, uh, we've had multiple patients out of our group on, uh, on 16, 18, 20, 22, 24 centimeters of water pressure, a peep, uh, to keep them, uh, within goal saturation. So there've been a couple though, that until we can get them lined up and get them prone and things, they needed that little boost to get them, uh, oxygenated well enough to get them through till we could get them prone. And then we've been able to wean it off, uh, shortly after that. Other than that, uh, I think that the best thing, uh, the thing that we've seen in our patients and the thing that, uh, has been most highly recommended in these guidelines is high levels of PEEP, um, and, and early prone positioning along with early intubation, and skipping some of the steps uh, prior to intubation uh, that we might normally utilize on on other patients uh, have been the most effective. We've we've intubated very quickly. I've been very impressed with our team how quickly they've intubated these people. They've they've uh, skipped a lot of steps and just intubated them right away. We've gotten them prone very quickly, and I think uh, that's something that we've seen some success with. Because uh, knock on wood, as of now, we haven't lost one in our facility, so. Um, hopefully we can continue to, uh, utilize those guidelines and, and, uh, you know, have some, have some good outcomes. That's, that's the goal. Well, Andrew, thank you very much for taking time uh, to, uh, help us and uh, help us understand the challenges that we all face. I think, uh, I know I'm personally grateful for your, for your input and your insight into how to approach this very difficult problem. And, you know, we all, all recognize that we're all in this together and together we'll move forward. So do you, is there anything else you want to say in closing? Well, I, I thank you also for your time, Dr. Test. I, I, it's been, it's been great uh, sharing some ideas and, and talking about the sort of the differences in our facilities and just recognizing that everybody's going to have their own unique set of, of issues along with the bigger issues that we'll all have together. Um, one thing I've noticed just, kind of as as a peripheral uh, idea to this, uh, there's been a lot of sharing of ideas and collaboration on social media. I've had a lot of my colleagues reach out to me. Um, I've reached out to, to colleagues that I have that I that I touch base with periodically. And I just think this has been a very um, a, a great example of, of collaboration and something that we all recognize is bigger than any of us individually. And I hope that that continues. And I think that this uh, uh, webinar that Rob put 
put together and we, we definitely appreciate Rob uh, donating his, uh, his time and his expertise to putting this together and sharing it with everyone. Uh, but I think that that's been one of the big things I've noticed and I hope that continues. And I think that's going to be something that helps us all get through this. All right. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. And thank you for our organizer from chess, Rob Rubito and for uh, chess and the American College Chess Physicians for making this possible. For the latest chest updates, guidelines, expert advice, clinical resources, and more, we invite you to visit our COVID-19 webpage at chestnet.org. Thank you for your service, and please stay well.